Heavenly Father, we ask that as we open the scriptures, you would open our ears and our eyes. Help us to hear the good news of grace in our text this morning. Help us to see Christ. God, we ask that you would make our hearts soft to your Holy Spirit's work, that we would be moldable and teachable. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. Okay, so we began the story of Joseph in chapter 37, and through the end of Genesis, what we'll see is Joseph takes a central role, Joseph and his father, Jacob. Um, They're one of the main characters in the story. But um, in fact, Genesis ends in Genesis 50, sorry, this thing's driving crazy. And what you'll see is at the very end of Genesis in chapter 50, um, it records Joseph's death. And so he kind of takes the central role, him and Jacob. But for whatever reason, God saw fit to inspire Moses to kind of deviate somewhat from the story of Joseph and Jacob to talk about the story of Judah. Judah. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, when God is pronouncing the curse on the serpent. So after Adam and Eve fell, God pronounces the curse on the serpent, on the devil. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So I want you to notice in that what I just read in Genesis 3, that curse, that pronouncement, God is putting enmity between two seeds. In other words, God is saying there are only two sides of the battle. All men will either be offspring of the serpent or they will be offspring of the woman. Good and evil. Offspring of the serpent or offspring of the woman. So in John chapter 8 verse 44, Jesus says to the scribes and to the Pharisees, he says that they were of their father, the devil. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, that they have been, that we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. And then notice back in Genesis 3, notice that he says that the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman is singular. So he says, God says, he will crush your head. He will crush your head. And this is, of course, speaking of who? Christ. This is speaking of the Messiah, the Savior. So the promise of a Redeemer was given to mankind at the very beginning. At the very beginning, at the fall, we were given a promise of a Messiah. By faith, God's people from, that, from the beginning have been looking for the dragon slayer, the serpent crusher. This one would save. If we jump ahead from Genesis 3 to Genesis chapter 49 then, which we're not there yet in our text. We'll get there in a few weeks. But if we go there, if we go to Genesis chapter 49, Israel, Jacob is blessing his children and he's blessing his sons. And I want you to listen. I'm going to read the prophetic blessing, the prophetic benediction that Israel, that Jacob gives to his son, Judah. Okay, listen to this. Judah... Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. This is to Judah. Now, listen to this. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Now, remember last week, Joseph? You remember Joseph's dreams? What did his dreams tell us? Who would bow down to Joseph? Yeah, his family, his father's sons. But Joseph, I mean, but Jacob, Israel, now says to Judah, your father's sons shall bow down before you. He continues, Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as the lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples not the people 
the peoples, the nations, the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So remember how I said last week, how absurd Joseph's dreams were to his brothers. Why? Because the older does not bow down to the younger. The older does not bow down to the younger. This is because in our natural inclination, it's like, it's like we have been programmed, pre-programmed. We come with this ingrained in us, ingrained in our moral compass. What? The oldest gets the front seat, period, right? This is seniority. It's ingrained into us. It's just kind of burned in. And it, 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 um, that is our natural inclination. And yet throughout Genesis, from the beginning, we've seen God is taking this natural inclination and he's flipping it, flipping it on its head. So now I don't expect you to remember all the stories that we've gone through from Genesis, but I want to remind you of some. We have Cain and Abel in the very beginning. Cain and Abel. Cain, the oldest, then Abel, the next, the next son. God rejects Cain and he accepts Abel. And then Cain kills Abel. He's mad and Cain kills Abel. And God replaces Cain with Seth, the, the youngest son. And then we have Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael being the oldest and Isaac being the younger. God chooses Isaac and he sends out Ishmael. Then there's Jacob and Esau. God loves the younger Jacob and he hates the older Esau. Then we have Joseph, who's, you know, one of 12, not the oldest. Joseph, who is chosen over Reuben, who was the oldest. Joseph is chosen. Joseph receives the inheritance. But then we see from the blessing that God twists it again. And he says, not Joseph, but Judah. Joseph received the inheritance, but God says Judah will be the chosen seed. Judah will be the possessor of the messianic line. And so as per Jacob's blessing, his prophetic blessing, the salvation of the world would come from Judah. He says the scepter, he says the lion would come from Judah. The obedience of the peoples, the nations, belongs to Judah. Belongs to Judah. The Redeemer would come from Judah. So God tells us here in Genesis 38, he tells us the story of our father, Judah. He tells us the story of our ancestor. And the story is anything but glamorous and dignified. In fact, the story is quite the opposite of glamour and dignity. It's the kind of story that we would try and stuff away and hope that everybody forgets about. It's the kind of story that, it, it's the kind of family history that we, we say, um, this is going to bring shame on your descendants, Judah, for generations. You'll see what we're talking about here in just a minute. But God, he does not tell this shameful story for the sake of shaming God does not tell the story of Judah and Tamar for the sake of shaming. He tells the story, um, he does not tell this humiliating story for the sake of humiliating Jacob, uh, Judah's descendants. He tells the stories of our father's cowardice. He tells the story of our father's unrighteousness for the sake of, for one purpose. What is that purpose? For the sake of exalting Christ. We look at our history, we look at our, fa our fathers and we say there is, no, there is nothing here to exalt in this shameful story, but God tells the story anyway to exalt Christ. So in their weakness, his strength would be made perfect. In your weakness, God is made strong. His strength is seen perfectly. So Christ came to strengthen the fearful, to make sinners Righteous. This is um, humiliating ancestry. This is uh, <laughs> this is a drama. You know, a shameful drama. 
but it does nothing but glorify the humility and the sacrifice of our Jesus. It, it, the love of God, the ineffable love of God, the love of God that cannot be snuffed out, the grace that is shown to us by God in Jesus is magnified. It is magnified when we learn the kinds of people that God saves and what we have been saved from. So we see God do this constantly throughout the scriptures. We see God using barren women, barren women to bring fruitfulness. We see God using pagan Gentiles and less than glorious men and women who have sorted past. These are the kinds of people that God likes to make the central characters in his stories. So take, take hope, folks. These are the kinds of people that God likes to make central characters in his stories. Screw-ups. He likes to use them for the most unlikely parts. So in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, if we go to Matthew chapter 1 and you read that genealogy, which we're not going to do this morning, you go to Matthew chapter 1 and what you're going to see, you're going to see that we are specifically reminded of um, five women, Mary, so four women besides Mary. They are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And it's like as if Mary's virgin birth of the, of the Savior isn't incredible enough in this genealogy, God is saying, um, by the way, don't forget about Tamar. Don't forget about Rahab. Don't forget about Ruth. Don't forget about Bathsheba. Because they were all a part of my divine conspiracy. These women, now, if you know these women's stories, this is incredible. These women, by faith, believed God. They believed the promise of a dragon-slaying seed from Genesis 3. They believed, and these women, by faith, would not be left out of that promise. So I want to tell you their stories just in real fast snapshot form. Bathsheba is the wife of a man named Uriah. Now, Uriah was one of King David's mighty men, his secret service, his SEAL Team 6. I mean, this guy was his man. Uriah was one of his inner circle men. It, it was a time when the kings were supposed to go out. David does not go out. It's not a good idea when you don't do what you're supposed to do. So David stays home. He sees this beautiful woman from his palace bathing on her roof, which... If you're a beautiful woman, you probably shouldn't bathe on your roof where the king can see you, unless you're just asking for trouble. And she was. So David sees her. They have an affair. He gets her pregnant. I'm talking about a Bible story. He gets her pregnant. David says, oh no, we've got to cover this up. So he brings Uriah back from battle. And he says, hey, man, come on, let's have a party. He gets him drunk. This is a Bible story. He gets him drunk and he says, hey, go home to your wife, you know, sleep with your wife. And Uriah, even drunk Uriah, is a faithful man. And he says, you know, that's a slap in the face to my men who are back on the battlefield sleeping in the dirt in the tents. So he does not. He sleeps outside his door. He does not go into his wife. He does not sleep with her. So David says, oh no, this is not working. So he sends a note with Uriah to his general to say, put Uriah in the front and then retreat. Make sure he dies. Make sure he does not come back from that battle. And guess what? He does it. He, he, the general does it. David's plan works. He murders Uriah. King David, the man after God's own heart, the King David who... If Jesus has a last name, it's not Christ. Jesus' last name would be David's son, son of David. Jesus, the man who bears the name of David. This is the King David. So they, God afflicts the child of David and Bathsheba's adultery. The child dies. And then they have another child and they name him Solomon. And that child is chosen to become the 
heir of the throne, but he is also chosen to become the heir of the messianic lineage. Solomon now becomes an ancestor of Christ. Unbelievable. If we back up a little bit, we see David. David has a great-grandmother who was a woman named Ruth. Ruth was a pagan Gentile. (laughs) She's not even an Israelite. She's not one of God's chosen people. She's a pagan Gentile. She's from Moab, which are enemies of Israel. So Paul says in Romans 3, none is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks for God. And Ruth is a particularly vivid image of that reality for us. She's not an Israelite. She's not seeking for God. God finds her. He saves her. One of the most beautiful pieces of prose that's, I believe, ever been written in the history of mankind is found in the story of Ruth. You you have probably heard it read at weddings. I'm going to read it to you. It says this, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. But here's the thing. This is not a wife to a husband or a husband to a wife. This is Ruth, the Moabitess, the pagan Gentile, speaking to Naomi, who is the mother of her dead Hebrew husband. Okay, let me unpack that. Naomi and her husband are Israelites, and they have two sons, and there's a famine in in the promised land, and so they leave, they go to the land of Moab. They go to a foreign land where there was food, So Ruth marries one of Naomi's two sons, but Naomi's husband dies, and then Naomi's two sons die. Ruth's husband also dies. So Naomi and Ruth are both left widowed. So Naomi pleads with Ruth to just leave, to just go back to her father's house, go go find a new husband because I got nothing for you, Ruth. And this is when Ruth says this to Naomi. Don't urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, Naomi, I will go. And where you lodge, Naomi, I will lodge. Your people, Naomi, shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So Naomi and Ruth, they go back to the promised land. They go back to Bethlehem. And to make a long story short, Ruth marries a man named Boaz. Then they have a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David. King David. Well, Boaz, which we're not going to get into really the story of Ruth and Boaz too much. I'll come back to it in just a little bit. But Boaz... We back up his storyline a little bit. Boaz was the son of a man named Salmon who married a woman named Rahab. The, the, uh, we have in our genealogy, remember, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. So we got Bathsheba, we got Ruth, now Rahab. Boaz, his mom was Rahab. Rahab like Ruth, was a Gentile. She was a pagan. She was not a Hebrew. She was not an Israelite. But even more shocking than that, I think, is the fact that Rahab was a prostitute. She was an unclean woman. She was a prostitute in a wicked city called Jericho. And Jericho was this great and fortified city in the promised land. So we're going back in time, remember? So in the promised land is Jericho. God 
commands Moses when he brings the children of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. He says, go into the promised land, drive out the inhabitants, destroy my enemies and, and take your promise. Take this land. Jericho is, is the one of the fortified cities in the promised land. Rahab hears of this. Rahab knows what's coming down the pike for the people in the promised land. She knows what's coming. And uh, she hears of the power of God. She hears of this God of, of Israel and she knows that his enemies, that the enemies of the God of Israel will not prevail against him. And she knows that she is an enemy of that God of Israel. So she knows she cannot prevail against this God of Israel as an enemy. And so what does she do? Well, before the great battle of Jericho, two spies are sent in to Jericho. And they just so happen to land at Rahab's house. So Rahab begs them for salvation. Please save me. Do not let me be destroyed with the enemies of the God of Israel. Please save me. She begs for mercy and they tell her to hang a scarlet cord out her window. hang a scarlet cord out your window, gather your family to your house, and everybody inside this house with the scarlet cord will be saved. Everybody inside would be spared the destruction of Jericho. And so um, by this, mercy has come to Rahab and she believes. She believes by faith, the prostitute becomes a friend of God And she spared the destruction. And one of her first righteous acts, in fact, we just read it this morning in James, her faith saved the spies and sent them out by another way. In other words, her faith led her to deceive the king and say, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know about any spies, but they think they, I think they went over there and they were hiding in her house. So she, she hid them by faith. She deceived the king and by faith, she stood with God She sided with God. She became a friend of God instead of an enemy of God. And then finally in the genealogy, we have Tamar. Tamar. And that's where we are at this morning in Genesis 38. So let's read that. Let's go to Genesis 38. Genesis 38, this is the word of the Lord. As it happened... At that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb, when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother in law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. It was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, his, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to 
Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know what she, that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went in to her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judas sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. We'll be laughed at. Let her keep the stuff. No no cold prostitutes been here. So you see, I sent this young goat. You did not find her. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these things belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please, Identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breach to breach. Afterward, his brothers came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. What a weird story, right? I mean, geez. Judah has three sons by a Canaanite woman, Canaanite being the promised land, except she's the, you know, the other inhabitants. She's not an Israelite. Judah goes, has a, three sons by a Canaanite woman, three, the three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. So he takes a woman, Tamar, for Ur, his oldest, but Ur is wicked, and so God puts Ur to death. And this leaves Tamar a widow, a widow without a child. So Judah gives Tamar to Onan, the next son to raise up offspring for the dead brother. So Onan is acting in this part, what would be later called the kinsman, the kinsman, the near relative, the redeemer. So the kinsman redeemer in the old covenant is, is a sort of office. It's, it's, there are responsibilities involved with being a kinsman. The word translated kinsman is the same word that's translated redeemer, This is the same word that is also translated avenger or revenger. Redeemer and revenger. Now get this, this blew my mind. Redeemer and avenger are the same word in Hebrew. Redeemer and avenger, same word. So the um, redeemer had judicial responsibilities. So if someone was murdered, 
it was the avenger, it was the kinsman who was responsible to pursue justice on behalf of his relative, on behalf of the victim, and, and to execute just judgment on the guilty. We see that laid out in Numbers 35. Also, when somebody became extremely poor or they came under great debt or, um, or were taken into slavery because of their debt and their poverty, it was the kinsman who would redeem his relative, his family. They would, he would redeem the, his, these members of his family from their poverty. We see that in Leviticus 25, verse 25. And then when a widow was left childless, it was the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer to impregnate her, to give her a child and to give her an heir. So this is what we see here in Genesis 38. Um, this, the idea of a kinsman redeemer is also central to the story of Ruth. Uh, Boaz became Ruth's kinsman redeemer. So Onan, Judah's second son, does not like the, does not like the idea so there, Judah has three sons. There are three brothers, which means the inheritance was to be split um, between them, but it's supposed to be split in such a way where the firstborn son gets a double portion. So if there are three sons, the way I understand this is that the, that the inheritance is split four ways and the firstborn receives two portions and the other two sons receive their portion. So, so three sons, four ways. Ur would receive 50% of the inheritance, Onan and Shelah would receive 25% each. So Ur dies. What does this mean for Onan? Bigger inheritance. Um, He's now the oldest. He now has the status and the inheritance that come with being the firstborn. So, uh, So Onan, what he doesn't like, if he gives Tamar a son, that son will become the heir in place of Ur and in place of Onan. So he says, I don't like that. I want this. I want this inheritance. I want this status. So every time he would go into Tamar, he would waste his seed on the ground so he would not give her a child. Because being a redeemer, being a kinsman redeemer, meant that your portion, his material legacy, and his status would be diminished. To be a kinsman redeemer was a total sacrifice, which is, which is what, again, makes the story of Ruth and Boaz so beautiful, so just glorious. It's a completely selfless task in which the redeemer gave expecting nothing in return. He would invest in the widow. He would invest in the woman. He would give her a son. And then eventually everything would be turned over to the son. Everything is given to the son. Onan was more concerned with his larger inheritance, his material legacy, than he was with his righteous responsibility to Tamar. So he deceives her, wastes his seed, doesn't give her a child, and this is wicked in the eyes of God, so God puts him to death just like his brother. So two of Judah's three sons now have died after having relations with this woman, Tamar. Now, what's going through Judah's mind, huh? As the daddy, what is he thinking about his boys? Where's the problem? Probably not in his sons in his mind. He's thinking, this woman, what in the world? She's cursed. So he's more concerned um, they die after having relations. So Judah's afraid to give his last son to Tamar. He's afraid that his last son is going to die. His only son he has left, he's afraid he will die. And so apparently Judah believes that the cause of death was Tamar. Well, what does the Bible tell us? The cause of death was these children, these sons' wickedness. So just like his sons, Judah is more concerned about his reputation and Um, than his obligations to Tamar. So unlike Naomi, Judah does not release her and send her to find another husband. Judah does not say, hey, go find another husband somewhere else. He says, go wait. And when my child is old enough, I'll give give you to him. So they are um, betrothed. 
So in the course of time, it becomes clear Tamar to Tamar that Judah's deceived her, that she's not going to be given to the son. She's, she's been abandoned. She's been rejected. Judah's, sons are, Judah's son is grown, but Tamar refuses to let this injustice go. She refuses to roll over and be forgotten. She refuses. She's stubborn. Tamar wants a child from this family. Now, go figure, right? You've been abandoned. You've been rejected. And Tamar says, I want a child from this family. I want a place in this family. And so even after all of the injustice, all of the rejection, she wants a place in Judah's family. She gets dressed up like a prostitute, like a cult prostitute. And she goes down to be seen by Judah. You know, woo-woo. He sees her and he takes the bait. And so I want you to understand, Tamar is, is taking a great risk by doing this. Not just because she's dressing up like a prostitute, but because Tamar is a widow. She gets pregnant, she's guilty. And as we see later in the story, we see she's guilty of death. So she's taking a great risk in doing this, but we also see that Tamar is no dummy. She is not, um, she's not frantic. She's not freaking out. She is cool, calm. She's calculated. She's extremely shrewd and wise. So for her services, Judah says, well, what do you want? And she says, um, they agree on a young goat as payment, but those don't fit in wallets very well. So she says, why don't you just give me your signet, your cord, and your staff. Now, the signet and the cord are used to roll over wax or clay. It was a means of identifying your, who you were. It was your identity. The staff was the same way. The staff would have been carved up in such a way as to um, identify Judah. It was his staff, and this is his identity. So in essence, she takes his means of identifying himself. She takes on his identity. She says, what do you want? What do you want for a pledge, Tamar? Give me your identity. It's getting interesting. So we see how shrewd Tamar, she's very wise, she's very discerning. So she waits about three months. Why? To make sure that there's no um, denying this. There's no denying her. There's no just quietly sweeping her away, putting her to death early or something like that. She waits until she is obviously pregnant until there's no denying her immorality, right? So um, Tamar's, um, Judah's response to Tamar's immorality is a judgment, not just for fornication, you know, not just for, fornication was a sin, is a sin, and it was um, bad, a bad sin. But Judah's response to her sin is not just fornication. His response to her sin, his judgment on her is for adultery, she will be burned with fire, which is harsh. So um, he told her to wait for his son. Now she's pregnant. Adultery. So he, um, he believes that he's finally found a way to free his family from this cursed woman. You know, yes, I don't have to give my son to her. We'll burn her, put her to death. And I get to stay on the moral high ground. I don't abandon her. I get to keep the moral high ground here. So she's being carried away to her execution by fire and she sends word to Judah saying, oh, by the way, I know who did this to me. Can you identify these? And when he sees them, when she plays her cards, when, she, when he sees who did this to her, what does he say? What is his response? His response is confession and repentance. His response is, she is more righteous than I. She dresses up like a prostitute. She deceives her father-in-law into having relations with her. And Judah sees straight through the mess. Judah sees straight through the mess and he sees what in Tamar. He sees her faith. He sees her persistent faith. And he says, she is more righteous than I. Here he is standing on the moral high ground and he says, she is more righteous than I. 
There's a story in the New Testament of a woman caught in adultery who is brought to Jesus just like Tamar. She's dragged to her death just like Tamar. This woman's accusers stood tall on their moral high ground just like Judah and they level their charges at this adulterous woman and they seek to stone her to death. And what does Jesus do? He acknowledges the guilt of the woman and he says to the hypocrite accusers, whoever is without sin, go ahead and throw your stones. In other words, he says, whoever is just, go ahead and execute justice. But just like Judah, they are exposed and humiliated. In the story we see Jesus, it says he stoops down and he plays in the dirt. Jesus stoops low and he cuts them down. You see, with these women caught in adultery, both with Timar and the woman accused of adultery in the New Testament, their place of judgment becomes the place of their justification. Their place of judgment becomes the place of their justification. Tamar is accused and she's taken to Judah to be condemned and instead she is justified. She is redeemed. So as it happens then, Tamar, pregnant, has twins. And they're just like the rest of the family. They're crafty little boogers. So the one the one little baby punches out and he's like, I'm first. And the midwife takes the hand and she wraps a scarlet thread around his hand, say, okay, he's the firstborn. He gets the inheritance. That's a huge deal in that culture. That was a big deal. Well, the, he takes his hand back and his brother sneaks past him. Now, I don't understand how that works out, but whatever, somehow this brother sneaks past him and he makes it out first. His name is Perez. Just like Tamar is rejected by Onan, okay? So if we go back to the story of Ruth, Ruth has a would-be redeemer who is closer than Boaz, but, but he rejects Ruth. He says, uh, no, if I redeem her, my stuff will get less. You know, I'll re- lose my material legacy. So he's like, I'm gonna pass. So Boaz steps in. Tamar and Ruth are both rejected by would-be redeemers because they're both concerned about their material legacy and their diminishing status. But here's the ironic part. They're more consumed, they're more concerned with saving themselves, with glorifying themselves, and what happens? They lose everything. One, the guy in Ruth, we don't even know his name. He says, it might tarnish my name. And the Bible always only refers to him in that story as, oh, what's his name? Onan is put to death by the Lord because of his wickedness. So in his, in his effort to save himself, he loses everything. That's the irony of that. And of course, Jesus tells us this. You try and save yourself, you're going to lose everything. Well, Rahab, do you remember what she was told to hang out of her window? Now, when we see something in the Bible that is matching here, we should always, it's not an accident. So in the story of Tamar, the kid gets the scarlet thread around his throne. They come to, they come to Ray, uh, around his arm. They come to Rahab and they said, hang out a scarlet cord out your window. Hang a scarlet cord out your window. And she does it. But see, um, Rahab doesn't just dress up like a prostitute like Tamar did. Rahab is a prostitute. And so in that ba- great battle of Jericho, we're told explicitly, specifically, I mean, there's a, they're, they're drawing a connection here. We're told there's a, a descendant of Tamar here in this battle, a descendant of Zerah, the kid with the scarlet thread in this battle. And this descendant of Zerah with the scarlet thread disobeys God in this battle. He covets the treasure of the enemy. He steals some. He hides it under his tent. So he hides this treasure under his tent from his people. But here's the thing. This descendant of Zerah with the scarlet thread could not hide his heart under his tent with his treasure from his God. So he's found out. And this is what it says. It says, he is found out and all Israel 
it says, stoned him with stones and burned him with fire. Because instead of faith in a promise, he presumed, he grabbed, he stole, he tries to save himself. And what happens? He loses. He loses everything. Just like Onan, just like, oh, what's his name? The story of Jericho. So do you see what happened? The presumptuous, the self-serving, the Hebrew man, the Israelite, gets the destruction. He gets the stones. He gets the fire. While the Gentile prostitute Rahab escapes the destruction by faith. We see the woman caught in adultery escape the stones. How? By faith. We see Tamar escape the fire by faith. The salvation of the world came through Judah and Tamar. And yet the story is anything but glamorous. It's not becoming of a king, much less it's much less becoming of the king of righteousness. And yet here God preserves it for all generations. Why? Because one day a husband who is better than Ur would come. A kinsman redeemer who is better than Onan would come. Why? Because one day a father who is better than Judah would not be afraid to give his son. Because a father who is better than Judah would not be afraid to give his son. He would send him to be a husband and a redeemer to a bride who he knew would be the death of him. See, Judah was afraid to give his only son because he was afraid that his son would be, this woman would be the death of his son. But Jesus was the son of a father who was not afraid to give his son to be a husband and a redeemer to a bride who would kill him be the death of him. This is our dragon slaying avenger. This is our Jesus promised in Genesis 3 who would come and who would take our guilt, who would crush our shame and our sin. The father's wrath would crush him instead of crushing us as we confess what he is more righteous than I. One day our Redeemer would come. A lion from the tribe of Judah would come. He would devour the devourer. He would cut down the proud and he would raise up the humble. Christ's humiliating ancestry, you see, does not, it does not humiliate Christ. It does nothing but glorify the humility of Christ. It does nothing but glorify the sacrifice, the love, So as God zooms in on these gross messes, he is magnifying his mercy and his grace and his love. Christ does not derive glory from flesh. In other words, Christ is not glorified because he's the son of an awesome guy. If I'm the son of the president, I'm deriving my glory from my father, the son of a president. But Christ does not derive glory from Judah, because Judah is a coward, because Judah is unrighteous. Instead, because our Redeemer takes broken people, he takes sinners and he makes them righteous, our brokenness is bound up in our Savior. Our unrighteousness is transformed to righteousness by our Jesus. He takes our fleshly brokenness and our sin-sit broken world and through death on the cross and through resurrection from the grave, he glorifies. So in Christ, by faith that says he is more righteous than I, the humble are raised up. The guilty are set free. The rejected and the abandoned are adopted and brought home by a faith that says he is more righteous than I, the cross of Christ, the place of our just judgment becomes the place of 
our justification. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you stand and let us pray. Heavenly Father, we confess he is more righteous than I. Thank you for your costly grace. Thank you for giving it freely to us when we did not deserve anything but death and flames. You poured out your wrath that was rightfully due to us. You poured it out upon your son who is more righteous than us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Father, we thank you. We ask that as we have abundantly received this grace, God, we ask that you would, that we would abundantly give this grace. That we would guard our hearts from fearing, from thinking that your grace to us could be used up or it could run dry. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. My charge to you is this. God's grace is an eternal fountain there is no end so we have the mission meal we have a potluck when we come to the potluck what do we do well what do a what does a humble person do a humble person says i'm gonna make sure there's gonna be enough for everybody you're gonna hold back you're gonna be a little bit more reserved but this is not like that the fountain of his grace is not like a church potluck do not be shy do not hold back go to the fountain of grace and take all you can Take all that you want. It says the, in the Bible, it says we are to approach the throne of grace with boldness and with confidence. So do it. Be bold. Take your fill freely and take your fill frequently. And because of this, because of this, do not be afraid. Do not be slow to freely give that grace to others. You will not run out. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father, to him be glory forever and ever, and dominion forever and ever. Amen and amen.